0: You can open your Bibles and head over to Colossians again. Colossians right in the middle of the New Testament there. Go eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And it's chapter 1 again. So back to Colossians chapter 1. We were there last week and we'll be there for one more week here. Starting in verse 15, we're going to read the same verses that we read last week. These are about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Of his cross. Last week we started a little two-part series of messages on these verses and I, I called it uh, Jesus is the answer, what's the question? Uh, Jesus is the answer, what's the question? And we saw as, as we looked at the first three of these verses last week that Jesus is the answer to a lot of questions that people are asking today when they don't realize he's the answer. Questions like, where did the universe come from? Uh, who is responsible for all the beauty and, and complexity and diversity that we see in the created world? Who makes sense of everything? Who keeps everything in place? Who keeps it from flying apart? And then finally, another, another question we, we had to ask that Jesus was the answer to, why does the world even exist? And why do we exist? As we looked through these verses, we found out that yes, Jesus was the answer to all these questions. And, and as we looked at his central role in creation... We saw that he is indeed involved and interested in all things, all things, including the decisions and events that determine the course of all of our lives. So that's how we sought Jesus last week. Today, I want to look at the, at the last three verses here, 18 to 20, and we'll see that Jesus is the answer to at least one more critical question. Very critical question. Uh, you may have noticed something the last few years. Um, The world we live in is very broken. Uh, It is filled with cruelty, selfishness, injustice, every expression of godlessness you could think of. Uh, From the crime filling our city streets to, to international criminals waging wars of aggression on whole nations, the world is a very dangerous place. Meanwhile, families are breaking apart. Lives are being destroyed by drugs and increasingly now through sex slavery and other forms of human trafficking. At a more uh, maybe cosmic level, nature itself seems to be broken. Raging wildfires, deadly storms, earthquakes, famine, drought. Meanwhile, we try to get together with our fellow human beings and we try to do something about all these problems, but when we do, it seems that all we can do is cast blame on each other and then talk past each other. That despite the unprecedented level of technology and the unprecedented level of connectivity we have to each other in so many different ways, especially through the internet, that at the same time, somehow we seem to be losing the ability to communicate with one another at all. Which ultimately reminds us that, that, that we're not immune to the brokenness ourselves, right? We're part of the problem. Each one of us, as a matter of fact, is broken. We are compromised by sin. We are... Uh, naturally enslaved by our own selfish desires and therefore we are unable to be part of the solution. And so one natural question to ask is certainly this one. Can anybody do anything to fix this? Can anybody do anything to fix this? You know, the presidential election season started off in earnest this past week. If you maybe watched the Republican debate on Wednesday night, and I didn't see it. I heard a lot about it. I'm not going to make any comments on the candidates or anything, but I will say this, that it seems every four years we, we, there's a kind of excitement in the air and maybe even a little bit of hope because we think, well, maybe there's somebody out there that can bring some kind of much needed change to our nation, to our world, to the way things are happening. But you know what? I also noticed that every time this season rolls around, every four years, we get just a little bit more cynical. And just a little bit less excited because we realize that the candidates themselves are broken. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like the candidates get more broken every four years. And even if they weren't, how can any political leader really hope to make any kind of a dent at all in all of this devastation and brokenness that's in our world? It's almost like can't we just take the world like it was a piece of paper, just crumple it up in a ball, throw it in the trash can, and maybe get a do over, get a new piece of paper? what makes us think we'll do any better the second time around well that's actually kind of an interesting question we'll see that in a few minutes but but I think you'll be happy to hear that the Bible the Bible though it certainly agrees with our observation that the world is profoundly broken the Bible actually gives us a lot more hope than I just gave you in the last two or three minutes The Bible is full of hope. The Old Testament is is chock full of prophecies and promises and predictions about a person. A person who will one day come into the world and actually succeed in changing things for the better. And the picture of this person starts out kind of blurry in the first few books of the Bible, but it gets clearer little by little as we move through the law and the Psalms and the prophets. and, And we find out that this person... Will be, yes, a political leader. He's gonna be a great king, in fact, who's gonna bring peace to the nations. But his impact will actually go beyond political institutions because his coming will actually bring the promise that human hearts can be changed and that lives can be renewed from the inside out because God's law, it says in the prophets, will be written on people's hearts. In fact, it says that at one point that the whole earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And it seems to have ramifications, not just for people or institutions, but even for nature itself. You read about the lamb lying down with the lion and the little child playing next to the nest of the viper. And it's as if the whole of creation will somehow be, be, be healed, as if all the messed up brokenness will somehow be reversed and everything will one day be put back together in the right place. What the Old Testament is describing and what the New Testament makes very explicit is that there's gonna be one day a new creation, a new creation, a redeemed creation, a perfect creation. And what Paul is telling us here in Colossians is that just as Jesus is the maker of and the Lord of and the reason for the original creation, Jesus is also the maker of the Lord of and the reason for the new creation. In other words, in this new creation, whatever it is, Jesus is still the answer to all of the how questions and the who questions and the why questions. How can this broken world possibly be put back together? Who can possibly fix this mess? Why would anybody even be interested in doing so considering how broken we are and how messed up we are? The answers, again, are all the same. The answer is Jesus. The answer is still Jesus. And Paul tells us in verses 19 and 20 that, and this is the same thing, by the way, he says in Second Corinthians 5. So if you want a parallel passage to this in a lot of ways, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. You can write that on the margin here in Colossians if you like. But in 2 Corinthians five twenty, Paul says that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. But he's even more detailed here in Colossians because here he says he wants to remind us once again, as he did a few verses ago, that Jesus himself is actually God. So he says that in all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And in Christ, God was reconciling all things to himself, meaning that the whole of creation is going to be included in this reconciliation. So for the rest of our time, what I want to do is I want to talk about how Jesus is the answer to all these big questions in the new creation, in the redeemed creation, as well as the original one. And I want to do that by looking at this word reconcile, reconcile. What does it mean for God to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus? And in particular, we're going to look at the nature of this reconciliation, what it is and what it's not. We're going to look at the means of this reconciliation, how does it happen. We're going to look at the extent of the reconciliation, how far does it go. And then lastly, we're going to look at the people of the reconciliation. So first of all, let's look just at the nature of this reconciliation, meaning what is this and what is it not? Because it's very easy to get some wrong ideas from this passage, especially if you look at it in isolation from the rest of Scripture. Because at first glance, if all you had was these, these three verses, Colossians 1, 18 to 20, it might seem from Paul's words here that since everything in the whole universe is going to be reconciled to God, that means that every being in heaven and on earth will one day be saved, As in, including Satan and the demons. Because technically speaking, they would be part of all things in heaven and on earth, right? Is Satan going to get saved? Well, not so fast. Because that would fly in the face of the very clear testimony throughout the rest of the Bible that says not everyone is going to be saved. So then what does it mean that all things will be reconciled to God? Well, you can think of it a few different ways. We can think of that word reconcile that has a lot of different shades of meaning to it. Think about reconcile in terms maybe of a financial reconciliation. Some of you balance checkbooks. Remember those things you used to have that you used to write numbers in and and everything used to work out at the end of the month? Not really, but you made it work out. You know, if you thought about it as a financial reconciliation, kind of balancing the books, then what, what it could be saying here is not necessarily all people are saved, but rather all accounts are settled. Or think of it this way, to reconcile to something also means to come to terms with it, to set it in its right place in our mind, to be in harmony with it. So we can we can also use the word reconciliation to mean this, that everything will one day come to terms with God in one way or another. The day will come, and this will happen through Christ, when everything and every person in heaven and on earth will finally be put in its proper place relative to God. And that proper place for some people will be with God for eternity and the proper place for other people will be out of his presence for eternity. John the Baptist said it this way. When John came before Jesus and he was preaching and he talked about the one who would come after him, meaning Christ, he would say, he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor And he said he's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So one way or another, John's saying, all things are going to be reconciled. The threshing floor will be cleared, using this wheat analogy here. The valuable wheat will be taken into the barn while the chaff, the worthless part of a wheat harvest, will be removed and burned up. Now, does that really happen to people? Last week we discovered that we were all created for a purpose. That purpose is for Jesus. For Jesus, to belong to him, to know him, to be in relationship with Jesus. Is it really possible to end up not fulfilling the purpose of your life but to become worthless and end up being discarded like chaff? Is that really possible? Luke says in his gospel that is precisely what happened to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In Luke seven thirty, Luke says this, by refusing to listen to John the Baptist's message and as a result, refusing to put their trust in Jesus, he said the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, quote, rejected God's purpose for themselves. So instead of being wheat, they became chaff. They made themselves useless to God, and by doing so, they forfeited any place they would have hoped to have in the new creation. See, this this reconciliation, to the extent that it means being brought back into close fellowship with God and restored to that fellowship with him only applies to the new creation, to the new creation. And you know what? Not everything in the old creation is gonna make the cut to get to the new creation. So let me repeat to you Paul's urgent call over in 2 Corinthians. He says, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. To God. And I hope and pray that it will never be said about any of you sitting in this room that you rejected God's purpose for you and ended up going into eternity in hell, separated from God, which is ultimately the proper place for those who forfeit their place in the new creation and reject God's purpose for their lives. So, how does someone who is part of the old creation become part of the new creation? How does this happen? Well, it turns out there's only one way in. There's only one way to get into that new creation. You know what it is? You have to die and come back to life. You have to die and come back to life. That's what it says. There's only one way in. You have to die and come back to life. That's what Jesus did in verse 18, right? It says, He became the first person to ever die and come back to life never to die again. There were other people that had come back from death and they'd been kind of resuscitated, Lazarus some other people that had been raised, but they all died again. Jesus came back to life, to eternal life, never to die again. And so not only is Jesus the maker and the owner of the new creation, he's also the first person to set foot in it. And he did this through his death and resurrection, just like we have to do if we're truly born again. Listen to what Romans 6 says. In Romans 6, it says this, we were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, your old broken self, your sinful nature, is broken and defiled and compromised. It doesn't make the cut when it comes to getting into the new creation. Even the good things that you do to try to make it up to God don't work. They're not worth anything when it comes to making that cut. In fact, your old self, the Bible tells you several times, is actually at enmity with God. It doesn't like him. It's actually opposed to him, even on its best days. But look down here in verse 20, here in in Colossians 1, where it tells us how Jesus accomplished the reconciliation. It says that he made peace. He made peace, how? By the blood of his cross. There it is, there's the means of reconciliation right there. Jesus did it, he did it by making peace through the blood of his cross. And when you stop trying to be your own lord and savior and you swallow your pride and you let down your defenses and you place your faith in Jesus Christ who died to pay for your sin and rose again in your place, you also die and rise again. God crucifies that old self of yours on the cross and then he raises you spiritually to a brand new life and in addition to being welcome now in the new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:17 that you now are a new creation, Amen. you are a new creation. by the way, you probably noticed this in the Romans six passage. if you didn 't i 'm going to point it out now, but every Christian is commanded by God to be baptized, to be baptized in water. This is not optional; this is an act of obedience. If you 've put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you have not followed him yet in baptism. Or if you feel like you need some more explanation of what it means, then please do not hesitate to talk with me or with Wes or TJ or Courtney or your teacher or a small group leader because you need to have that discussion. Baptism in water is a clear instruction from the Lord that those who have died and been raised again with Jesus testify to what God has done. And how we do that is by going into and out of that water as a symbol and a declaration that you've died and risen again and you're now a new person, a new creation in Christ. But let's talk a minute about the extent of that reconciliation. Assuming you are now born again, you've been made a new creation in Christ, what all gets reconciled to God? Okay, we're gonna talk about the personal side of this first, okay? The answer is found in verse 20. It's a phrase we've seen before. All things. Everything. All things. So let's look first, as I said, at this kind of individual, personal level. Let's say... I have a past. Let's say I've done some horrible things in my life. Let's say I've hurt a lot of people. And let's say I have this truckload of guilt and shame that I can't seem to get rid of. Can I ever be free from that? Is that even a possibility? Is healing really possible? Is wholeness possible? Or, what if I've been abused or victimized, maybe even in some shameful way, by another person? And the memories of that just just haunt me, and I always feel somehow tainted or compromised or dirty or unworthy. Can Jesus somehow redeem that? Can God come to terms with that? Can that be reconciled to God? What if I'm same sex attracted? I mean, I've heard the Bible seems to have a problem with that. So what if, I am, or what, if, what if I'm not even sure? What if my desires and affections in this area are so confusing to me that I don't even know who I am anymore? Does, does Jesus redeem that? Can that be reconciled to God somehow? Listen, when you become a new creation in Christ, there is nothing beyond the reach of Of God's reconciliation There is nothing that Christ can't redeem In Christ, please hear me Your identity is not determined By your sexual desires Your gender identity The pain of your past hurts The failures of your past life Or the shame of your most hideous sins That's not what God sees when he looks at you. Instead, he sees your new identity. He sees that perfect record of obedience that was gifted to you by Jesus Christ because when he took your sin on the cross, he gave you his righteousness. That's the starting point. And yes, change in your life may be a long and even painful process. Some victories will happen in a moment. Others will take years. Some elements in your life will have to be transformed. Some will have to be better understood. Some will need to be repented of. Some will need to be released, forgiven, and left behind. But the power to do this, you'll be happy to hear, doesn't come from you. It comes from the one who is infinitely more powerful than you and who is using his power, he says, to make all things new. Including what you just thought of. That's the personal level. That's good news. What about the macro level, you know, the cosmic level? What about all those problems with the world that we identified earlier, all the brokenness in culture and in society and in families and politics international relations and all that mess? Is, Is Jesus really interested in redeeming all those things? Can those things be reconciled to God somehow or is that asking too much? Well, when Jesus first showed up on the scene, The gospel message that he was preaching sounded a little different than the one we preach today. See, he hadn't yet died for the sins of the world, but he knew he was going to, and he still wanted to invite people into this new creation we've been talking about. And so here's how he put it. He said this, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Is at hand When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we become a new creation, we enter this thing called the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. When you become born again, you enter the kingdom of God. Well, what is this kingdom? What is this kingdom? Well, it's, it's really just a new creation taking hold. And if you read the Old Testament prophets and if you read the book of Revelation, you will see that this kingdom includes not just individuals, but institutions as well. Can Jesus redeem international relations? That mess? Does he care about these things? The Bible tells us in Isaiah and in Micah, there's a kingdom coming one day where the nations of the world will beat their swords into plowshares and in fact the leaves of the tree of life in Revelation in the new creation will be for the healing of the nations. The nations can be redeemed. What about things like music and art? We've messed those up a little bit, right? Can those be redeemed? Read the book of Revelation. You'll see the kingdom of God when it comes in all its fullness is full of singing and exquisite beauty. What about race relations? We've messed that up. Can that be unbroken somehow? Let me ask you this. Do you see any possible place for racism or prejudice when people from every tongue and tribe and nation gather for worship around the throne of the king together? It seems clear to me that God's plan in the new creation is not to destroy human institutions, but to redeem them. Not to remove the differences between nations and races, but to highlight them in all their beautiful diversity. Not to obliterate human culture, but to heal and purify and transform it. Now, in talking about that stuff, I've bitten off a lot more than I can chew with this sermon, so I can't take any further down that road today. I'm sure my seminary preaching professor will flunk me this morning trying to talk about too many things. But he's not here, so um, I'm just going to take you in one more direction, okay? Just one more direction, so, so stick with me. Stick with me, and, and um, we're going to talk just for a few minutes at the end here about the people of reconciliation, the people of reconciliation, because this is, is going to bring it down a little more down-to-earthy here. Excuse me. Did you notice in verse 18 that we meaning the church, make an appearance in these verses. In fact, it's not just a cameo. It seems like we're part of the main plot of the thing here, and and we are. God is going to reconcile all these things to himself through Christ, but we are the body of Christ. That puts us right in the middle of the drama. In fact, Paul is even more explicit about this over in Ephesians, where he says that the church, that's us, are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Who's the one who fills everything in every way? It's Jesus. So God is, is pleased to let all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ, but then somehow the church is the fullness of Jesus over in Ephesians. I don't know what all of that means, but one thing I think it does mean is that Jesus isn't doing anything without including us. In fact, it sounds to me as if there's, if there's one group of people that's absolutely critical for this reconciliation thing to happen in the world, it's not the scientists. It's not the doctors. It's not the military leaders. It's not the politicians. It's not the UN. You know who it is? It's the church. It's us. As the very body of Christ, we are the people of reconciliation. And that's true in two ways. First of all, we are the objects of reconciliation in that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ's blood. But then we are also, and Paul says this also in 2 Corinthians, we are also the ambassadors of reconciliation. We are the ones announcing peace. We are the ones proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We are the ones inviting other people to enter this new creation and become reborn by the Holy Spirit. This is the work of evangelism, of telling the good news of Christ's redeeming death and resurrection to other people so they can also know him and put their faith in him. And this is a work that every Christian is called to in our area of influence. But it's more than evangelism. Remember, the scope of Christ's reconciliation extends to all things. Things like institutions and culture. So you say, well, can Christ redeem my workplace? There's a lot of bad stuff going on over there. Can Christ redeem my school? My school is a mess. Can Christ redeem my neighborhood? My softball team? My city? Is he interested in these things or merely in the individuals who are part of them? Last week, um, I hope most of you last week saw the video. We saw a video about the work of Envision in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. And we saw how this group of Christians had moved into a building that had formerly been a brothel and it was a place of just great darkness and pain. Um, And they turned it into what I think we could probably call a kingdom coffee shop. And yes, they were obviously trying to reach individual people, especially the college students in the area who would come there, but I think if you really watch the video carefully, you got the idea as as they were praying over that building and as they were as they were beautifying it and writing Bible verses all over the walls that yes, they were after the individuals who had come to the building, but I think you could tell they were after the place as well. They wanted the place. They wanted that location. They they wanted to alter the perception of that neighborhood. They wanted to impact the economy in that region of the city. They wanted to enhance the work of the nearby university because universities are not in great shape in in the Dominican Republic. And they wanted to bring life and vitality back to a place that had known nothing but death and misery. Jesus redeems all things. All things. Which means that you, Christian, can be a redemptive presence a redemptive presence in your workplace, on your sports team, in your neighborhood, in your classroom. By living a Jesus life in that place, you can actually influence the place itself and the way things are done there. And by sharing the gospel with the people of that place, you can invite them to join you as part of the new creation that Jesus started 2,000 years ago and is still preparing and still populating. That's how you can. Well, what about our church? What about First Alliance, like together? In addition to being a gospel preaching church on Arnold Road, in addition to our members faithfully witnessing for Jesus in their spheres of influence, which I know a lot of you are doing and inviting people to church and that sort of thing, are, are there ways in which we as a church, as a corporate body, can be a redemptive presence in Lexington, North Carolina? Is there a way for us to step into the broken places together and make a kingdom difference in families, in businesses, and yeah, maybe even in schools. For a little over a year now, First Alliance has been partnering with Pickett Elementary School to provide weekend meals for underprivileged students. This past month, we extended our outreach to Charles England and also to Lexington Middle School by providing dozens of gift certificates for teachers and administrators. Thank you for giving toward those things. And yes, we've done a couple other things as well, like the soccer outreach last year, attending PTA meetings occasionally. But, but mostly what we've been doing in the, in the city schools is just sending money and gifts, which is good. But we're kind, it's kind of like we're lobbing artillery shells into the kingdom of darkness from a safe distance right now, right? But there's obviously a lot more we can do and, and closer that we can get. But let, let me just issue you an invitation, okay? And this is not an invitation to do anything or to run into the city right now or anything like that. Right now, my invitation is nothing more and nothing less than a call to prayer. So, starting next week, this is very concrete. You can write this down. Starting next week, we will be opening the prayer room during the Sunday school hour, so from nine to 10, for the express purpose of praying for what our district superintendent likes to call our parish. That means our community, okay? So we'll be seeking God for how our church can become more of a redemptive presence in our city, Lexington, especially the broken places of which the city schools are certainly a part, and we have kind of a head start there. So if you're not used to coming at nine o'clock, here's a really good reason to get up an hour earlier. If you are used to coming to Sunday school, I'm gonna take a liberty here and I'm gonna say your teacher will not get mad if you skip class to go to this, whether it's just for one week or for a month or for a quarter or whatever. In fact, you know, you know, we won't be taking attendance, but maybe one Sunday your teacher will bring your whole class on a field trip to the prayer room to pray for our community. That would be okay. See, I'm, con- I'm convinced, I became more convinced of this at general counsel this year, that we won't really cross over into the more broken parts of our city until we're all on the same page about what needs to be done. And we will not get to that point unless we spend some quality time praying about it and especially taking some of that time to actually listen to God and not just talk at him the whole time. So the prayer will look a little bit different. It'll look a little bit more maybe relaxed in some ways. There may be some moments of silence. There'll be some time of just kind of going back and forth with God. It's not necessarily for us to pray for individual needs. There are other times to do that, like the Wednesday prayer meeting. As a matter of fact, there are, there are some people usually in the prayer room between 8 and 9 that if you need to go and pray for individual needs, that's already in place. But this is a little different kind of prayer. So, by the way, it's not just for adults either. So if kids and youth want to come, they are very welcome to do that, starting in September, starting September whatever the first Sunday of September is, September 3rd. Um, I started out this morning speaking very pessimistically about our culture, leading up to the question, who can possibly do anything to fix the brokenness in this world? There's actually a similar question that gets asked in the Bible. It's actually in the book of Revelation, chapter five. And there's a mighty angel. And the mighty angel is kind of up in heaven and John is seeing this vision and, and, and the mighty angel is looking at a scroll. He's looking at a sealed scroll. It's got seven seals on it. And and those seals need to be broken. And that scroll needs to be opened up in order for the kingdom of God to come in all of its fullness. For history to come to its rightful conclusion. And for all things to be finally reconciled to God. This scroll has to be opened up. And so people are asking in the scene in heaven, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And they look around heaven. But nobody can be found who can do it. And John, as he's seeing these things prophetically, he begins to weep in despair because no one is able to open the scroll. But then suddenly one of the elders who is worshiping around the throne, he says, wait, look, look over there. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David. He has conquered and he is able to open the scroll. Is there anyone who can put an end To all this brokenness, there is. There is. And now you know his name. Let's pray.